there is another dimension beyond anything you've known before. A world of ideals that are as vast in their significance as they are in their application. You are traveling into another reality, a world that lies between imagination and the touch points of everyday life. A wondrous kingdom whose boundaries are supernatural. You're entering a parallel world. in the orchard about 12 miles north of Wenakti when a helicopter hit some overline, uh, overhead power lines and landed on top of him. This is a true story. He says, I was pinned against the steering wheel, stuck with the nose of the helicopter sitting right behind me. He just graduated from high school. He's 18. Logan freed himself from the wreckage only to find the helicopter pilot trapped, dangling upside down in his harness. I heard him screaming, said Logan. I looked and saw him upside down hanging. Fire was everywhere. And at that moment, I wasn't really thinking. I was just doing. Here's a picture of the incident. His tractor engulfed in flames, the wreckage of the helicopter over it. Logan freed the pilot, both with only minor injuries. Um, Now, the odds of getting hit by a falling helicopter... And walking away with just a few light burns are slim. According to Logan, he said, oh, it's probably one in a million. I think he's underestimating it. (laughs) Uh, They asked him, you know, when they interviewed him for the paper, they said, did you go out and buy a lottery ticket that day? He said, I did. I won two bucks. And and then he said this, the craziest thing about the whole situation is that the pilot and I share the same birthday. He goes, it's really bizarre. No, it gets better. Despite the accident, this was the article, Logan said he plans to pursue his dream of being a pilot. (laughs) He's going to go to flight school in the fall after a crash course in close calls. And he, here was the closing article or the closing line in the newspaper article. He said, I feel like I always have someone watching over me, like God's watching over me, protecting me. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> he goes, you never know when it could be your last moment. Pretty sharp for 18. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verse 9 is where we're going to begin today. Thank you so much for being here. Grateful for those who logged on. Take a second. As, as Sean mentioned earlier, fill out your connection card. Uh, if you here in the room, you can leave that in the pew next to you watching online. Uh, you can uh, do the online version of that. And, and for those of you watching online, it just it takes a little extra effort for you, if you're not in the room, to, to stay engaged, to be in the chat, to fill that out um, and, and do that. But we're grateful that you logged on. Thank you. Uh, we're, we've been in a sermon series called Parallel Worlds where we're looking at Jesus' parables from Luke's gospel and how they, they kind of function like, like an alternate reality, right? It's, Jesus paints this picture, and it's, it's reality, but he tells true-to-life stories, but, but they always have this weird twist or this weird turn, and usually it's in that place where it turns that you go, oh, okay, that's where the, the, the meaning of it is. And it's, it's kind of like the twilight zone, right? It's just this, yeah, it's real life, but it's, it's just, it hangs a left, right? Today's parable in Luke 20 is no exception to that. 
Jesus' parables often produced a reaction of surprise or shock or even revulsion in his original audience. And today's parables right in line with that. In the passage just prior to this one, Jesus had been dealing with questions from the Jewish religious leaders about um, his right to do what he'd been doing. Okay, his, his, the, the right to teach the people what he'd been teaching them. And so he asks them a question, and it just it gives them kind of this existential crisis. It just shuts them down, you know? He, you know. he talks about John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? And they're like, uh, you know, if we say this, he'll say this. If we say that, he'll say that. And they go, uh, we don't know, you know? <laughs> it's like, would you rather be in a helicopter that's falling out of the sky or have one fall on you? Can I, option C, be safe at home watching on TV? Like, um, is that cool? See, this is, you need to know when this happens, all right? This is the final week of Jesus' life. This is days before he's crucified. Probably just the day or two before, Jesus has cleansed the temple. Right? Jesus and the disciples go in and they just kind of take over the temple complex. You know, he's flipping tables and casting out money changers. And like, like, so this whole, whole idea of Jesus' authority and does he have the right to say what he's saying is very much at issue here. When Jesus illustrates in cleansing the temple that he was the rightful master and that those who were claiming to be in charge of it were unworthy servants, that has bearing on the parable. And I tell you that so that you'll understand the same thing that Jesus was trying to tell the people in today's parable. It, it's the big idea. Now, I will tell you that this very likely will win the prize for the longest big idea I've ever given in my life. But it's just a complicated parable, okay? <laughs> and here it is. When you usurp, that means to, to, to steal away from, to take away from. When you usurp God's place as your rightful master, you're effectively plotting your own destruction. You're setting yourself up for fall. He says, but if you throw yourself on Jesus as your only hope, he will use your brokenness to build a foundation of wholeness. That's what I want you to keep in mind as we read the text together this morning, okay? Look at this with me. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He, st he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and said, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So what is this parallel world trying to teach us about reality as God sees it? I think there are two dynamics. I don't know another word for it. Two, two, two aspects of life, two dynamics that we need to pay attention to today. Here's the first one. Plotting leads to punishment. Plotting leads to punishment. 
Now, now it's interpretively dangerous and generally not a good idea to kind of guess at the motivations of characters in parables, except today. (laughs) I think today we need to talk about this. We need to spend some time here because I've been thinking a lot about what might motivate these guys to do what they did in the story. Like what could possibly have motivated them to to rebel against the master, the, the owner of the vineyard? to be so flagrantly disloyal. And the only thing I can come up with is it's just raw, arrogant pride. They're just, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're self-assured, they're cocky, whatever word you want to put on it. They think the master's far away. They say he won't be back for a long time, right? Their distance from the master allows them to persist in the mistaken belief that they can do whatever they want that they can just get away with it, that they're safe to plot against him. And I got to tell you, it's really tough for me to admit, to own up to the fact that here I am, 35 years into my walk with Jesus, and I still think that sometimes I can do stuff that God doesn't see me do. From the giggles, I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Some of y'all do this too. We, we, just, we're, we persist in this mistaken belief that he can't see me. He doesn't know. Oh, he knows. He knows. And if I'm honest with myself and I'm honest with you today, I, I don't think I do this because I'm stupid. I, I don't, maybe, but I don't think so. I think it's pride. It's just it's self-assured arrogance. It's, it's the root of that. There's a reason that pride is listed first among the seven deadly sins. It will make you fall harder and faster than any of the others. And I want to tell you this morning that all of our prideful, arrogant plotting is just setting us up for heartache and punishment. Now, I've used this word. Let me define it. What do I mean by plotting? Simply speaking, it is a flagrant disregard for the authority of God's word over us. When we, when we plot, when we scheme, we're, we're really just disregarding the authority of God's word. We're thinking that we're above that. We're, it's pride. It's, just, it's all it is. It's pride. The servants that the landowner sends, I think, are rightly interpreted as the, the prophets of the Old Testament who bring his word to the people. The job of an Old Testament prophet was not, I want you to hear me, church, this is so important. It was not to primarily foretell the future. They did very, very little of that. The primary job of a prophet in the Bible is to call God's people back to the covenant. They were preachers. They were, they were to give God's word to the people. They were God's spokesmen. And so when Jesus says that they're, they're mistreating the, the servants of the landowner, what he's saying is you are disregarding God's word. You are placing yourself above it. You're plotting, and that will lead to punishment. And when we do this, it, the kind of reaction it should produce is the reaction that the people have in the parable, right? It ought to produce revulsion. It ought to produce shock and shame in us. Because that's what the people do in verse 16, right? They say, may this never be, in some translations. The NIV has, God forbid. Now that phrase appears 15 times in the New Testament, 14 of which are Paul. This is the only time it appears outside Paul's writings, and Jesus is telling it in this parable. It was the strongest way in the Greek language that you could say no. 
What he's translating here is it's the strongest way that you could say no. So the NIV does God forbid, right? Other translations, may it never be. No, 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 no. If we were to translate that into modern colloquial English, think of what is the strongest way you can think of to say no. Generally in English, what we do is beep, no. That's not far from the mark. That's, what, that's the reaction to this parable. And, and I don't think it's just that the landowner gave the land to somebody else. It's the whole story. What these servants did was utterly and completely shameful. Way, way, way outside what was considered okay. These, these people, they, they get it. They're completely incensed by this parable. They recognize the wrongness of the servants. They're reacting viscerally to the story that Jesus said. How dare they do what they did? Sometimes we do that with other people's sin and not so much with our own. How dare they? Every now and then, you better look in the mirror and do that too. How dare you do that? You're plotting your own destruction. I I don't know if the people who heard Jesus' parable that day would have been reminded of the song of the vineyard from Isaiah 5. I think that's what he's referencing. I think that's, it's an Old Testament parable. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 3. Look at this. He says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking, and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. The prophet, of course, speaking on behalf of God. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? What did Jesus say? You'll know them by their fruit. And then we get the interpretation of the parable just a few verses later in verse 7. It says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. Now when you put this alongside Jesus' quote of Psalm 118, that's what he was quoting. The, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. What you get is a picture of God pronouncing judgment against these servants because of their refusal to produce spiritual fruit for him. And so many times God is looking to us to produce fruit, not plot sin. And what he finds is far too often different from what he wants. And I lived this out uh, once as a young guy, and boy, I mean, it, it taught me a lesson I've never forgotten. Um... In the summer of 1993, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Brisbane, Australia. Uh, my youth minister growing up, uh, Jay St. Clair, was friends with a guy named Tony Giles. Tony was an Aussie, uh, had come to, to the United States to go to school, uh, went back to Brisbane, and if you think of the eastern coast of Australia, it kind of looks like a, an arc like this, and Brisbane's right on the point. It's just, Brisbane's a little bit, it was a little bit bigger then than India's now, so I'm sure it's substantively larger now, but... Um, we went there, and Tony and Jay had become friends, and Tony reached out to Jay and said, hey, we started this new church, and we've got, we've got some adults, and we've got some little babies. We don't have any kids. We don't have, any youth, we don't have a youth group. So would you bring some kids down and help us get our youth group off the ground? Yeah, great. So me and 18 of my friends went down there and uh, helped. So the first week we were there, we just did some canvassing, knocking on doors, like inviting kids to this thing. The second week we were there, we like hung out at the mall and hung out at the pizza place where kids hung out because it was summer, uh, you know, and well, winter there, summer for us. And we were hanging out with kids and um, invited them to like a, a youth rally in the evening. It was a lot of fun, guys. We had a band called the Screaming White Jamaicans. You can't make that up. Um, 
was a reg, Christian reggae band. It was a lot of fun. And then the third week, we did a week of church camp up in the mountains. And they've got a, they've got a mountain range there, kind of like our Appalachians, you know, 50 to 100 miles inland or whatever. But it's a rainforest. It's some of the best hiking in the world. Like we're doing some rock hopping up a stream. And, and at one point, we go on this long hike for our recreation one afternoon. And, and there's this, we're, we're hiking down through a canyon, but you could see kind of the other, it went way up on the other side. This huge rock outcropping. And, and I, I'm a bit of an adventure seeker and kind of an adrenaline junkie. And I'm like, I'm going to climb the thing. I'm going to climb up there and, and check it out. And I had this all figured out. Like, I'm going to just, like, you know, bound from rock to rock up the thing, and all the girls in the youth group will think I'm cool. I didn't understand women back then either, Aaron. Um, so, but that was my thought, right? I thought that's, what I, that's what I was thinking, right? And so I, I start doing this. I'm climbing up, making good progress. And my friends are hanging out down by. There's this little stream, and some of them are cooling their feet because we've been walking a ways. And I stepped on this rock that looks solid. I underlined the word looked. It wasn't. It slid out from underneath me, and I fell toward one side and grabbed a tree that was sticking out of the side of the hill and hung on for dear life and started a rock slide. So rocks the size of watermelons are, are bounding down this hill at my friends and fellow missionary kids down there. And I it just froze. I'm, just like, I'm hugging this tree for dear life. Look out! You know, I'm yelling and just watching horror as this thing played out in front of me. And then out of nowhere, Brent Bell stepped up. Brent was a starting right tackle for the Joplin High School football team. My friend, kid in the youth group. And, and he stepped up to a picture of two of us here. Um, it's Brent in the shades. <laughs> and, and by the way, we're, we're only kind of like hunching in that grass. It's really tall. He's a big dude, right? He's, a, he's, a, he's on our football team. He steps up and he just starts batting these things down as they're rolling down. They just poof, poof by hand. It was amazing. It was awesome. It, it totally blew me away. I mean, this is rugged country, right? We are an hour's drive from the nearest doctor. Shoot, we're an hour's walk from the closest bathroom. Like, we're in, we are in the outback, like the real one. There's no blooming onions anywhere. We're in the outback. My friends about died except for Brent stepping in. My little plot to be cool could have ended up killing some of my friends. And sometimes that's the way life works. Just like the tenants in the parable, we get stuck on ourselves. We don't seek any outside wisdom. We live in this little echo chamber of our own mind. And we start plotting and scheming. And we don't even see the rock slide headed right at us, and we can't stop the ones we start. And so you've got a choice. I mean, if you try to scheme, if you try to plot your way into running your life instead of letting God do it, you are only plotting your own destruction. But here's the twist. The only way out of that is to accept your brokenness and choose repentance, to embrace vulnerability. The first dynamic is that so many times we try to plot our own destruction all our scheming, all our trying to get ahead ends up hurting us. <laughs> but the second thing that this parable teaches us is that, that vulnerability leads to victory. Vulnerability leads to victory. 
I think part of the reason the people reacted so strongly to Jesus' story was that they could hardly conceive of a landowner showing so much vulnerability as to send his son and heir. And by the way, did you catch the language? This is my son whom I love. He's, go back to Luke 3, 22. At Jesus' baptism, Jesus comes up out of the water. A voice speaks from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Now, would Jesus' audience hearing the parable that day have caught the reference? Probably not. But as Luke's readers, we should. Because it's the same phrase. This is my son whom I love. And part of the reason why I think the root sin of the tenants in the parable is this arrogant pride lies in their response to the landowner sending his son. Right? They say in verse 14, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. What? No. <laughs> like that's, remember the, com the commercial? That's not how the little old lady, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Like that's, what are you thinking? They want to oust the landowner from his own property and take over. How is that different from our attempts to kick God off the throne of our life? I don't think it is. I think it's the same thing. I think so many times we're just like, I got this. God is like, you're an idiot. You don't, you don't got this. In our pride, we stage a mutiny on God, and because of that sin, deserve rightful judgment. And the vulnerability of the landowner here is incredible because... In the parable, he, has the, he knows his servants have rebelled. He knows that they're treacherous, treasonous against him. He knows that, and he still sends his son. And the people listening are like, why would he do that? Because he loves them and chooses vulnerability. Now, that ultimately leads to victory, though in the parable, it was pretty rough on the servants. In sending these servants, the Old Testament prophets, and the son, of course that's Jesus, God does the unthinkable. He lowers himself to reach out in mercy to the evildoers. You need to understand this. In, in the mind of God, in telling this parable, the, the master, the landowner sending his son is not because it's, he's dumb. It's because he loves these tenants. He doesn't do it because he's foolish. He does it out of love. He chooses vulnerability. He's giving them one last chance to repent. Because if the son, as the representative of the father, had shown up and said, what were you doing? And they had said, we were wrong. We sinned. Please forgive us. There may have been repentance. There may have been forgiveness. The landowner does not send his son because he's dumb. He sends his son because he loves it's mercy. But the servants and the son are beaten, shamed, wounded, and sent out. Does that sound like anyone else you know? This is days before the crucifixion. Jesus tells this story days a couple days before these exact same things would happen to him. More than almost any other parable, this one prefigures the sufferings and crucifixion of Jesus. Listen, God had every right to be angry with us and wipe us off the map, but he reprocessed his anger into vulnerability. And when he did that, that leads to victory for him and us. 
And I guess one thing I want to tell you here this morning, church, is that if you're struggling with anger or bitterness somehow, and let's be honest, in 2022, who isn't? At least for something, for some reason, on some level. If you're struggling with, angerness, with anger and bitterness, I want you to know that, that allowing your anger and bitterness and frustration to be reprocessed into vulnerability and choosing to be vulnerable, yes, even to those who hurt you, can radically transform your heart and it can lead to victory that you would never have expected. Let me tell you a true story about when that happened. In the concluding decades of the last century, Hussein bin Talal was king of Jordan, Israel's neighbor to the east. Many unforgettable stories are still told in the Middle East about the king. Um, the following story was confirmed as true by a high-ranking American intelligence officer who served there in the early 1980s. At that time, um, the king was informed by his security police that about 75 uh, high-ranking uh, and heavily armed Jordanian army officers were at that very moment meeting at a nearby military barracks uh, plotting uh, a military coup to overthrow the kingdom. And the security officers requested permission to surround the barracks um, and arrest the conspirators. The king thought for a second, and he said, bring me a small helicopter. And in a Middle Eastern country, when the king says something like that, there's no pushback. They just go get the helicopter. And so they did. And he got into the helicopter and flew from his palace and landed on the flat roof of the barracks. He told the pilot, he said, leave the window cracked. If you hear gunfire, fly away immediately without me. You got that? Yes, your majesty. Okay. And he walked through the door down into the dark of the warehouse. Walked into the room where these conspirators were meeting, completely unarmed, open-handed. Of course, time just stopped in that moment, right? They all froze. And for one splintered second, nothing happened. And then the king spoke. He said, gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, send me into exile, and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way only one man will die. There was a beat. And then as one man, every single one of those guys rushed forward and knelt at the king's feet and kissed his hands and pledged undying loyalty to him for the rest of their lives. The vulnerability of the king is what allowed peace and purpose to come back into the lives of those conspirators. Let me ask you, church, are we any different? Did you hear me? When you usurp God's place as your rightful master, you are effectively plotting your own destruction. But if you throw yourself upon Jesus as your only hope, he will use your brokenness to build a foundation of wholeness. When you throw yourself onto our King Jesus, who chose vulnerability for your sake, it'll probably hurt for a while. But that's the only way to be made whole. I mean, this really is the essence of what we celebrate on the day of our baptism and in communion each week. The day that the King of kings and Lord of lords took all our brokenness on himself to make us whole again. 
In our baptism, we celebrate this because we, we admit, we acknowledge that our lives are so broken, the only way for God to fix it is to kill off the old us, us and resurrect a new one. We got to see that as, as Abby got baptized in our last service. In communion, we celebrate this because we recognize that even though we've been raised to life in Christ, we still struggle with that old sin nature. Every now and then we find ourselves plotting again. And God says, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> and so we recognize this continual need for God's grace expressed to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's the good news. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin, he became the physical embodiment of sin? God punished your sin on the cross when Jesus died for you. The price has already been paid. You have a victory because of that. And if you're not living in it, it's not because it's not available. It's because you're plotting. Stop your scheming. Yield the land back to the master. See, the reason Jesus references Psalm 118 in this parable was that he was thinking not only of his death on our behalf, but also I believe he was mindful of the promise that's in the broader passage. Look again at Psalm 118, verse 18. The Lord has chastened me severely. It's the cross. But he has not given me over to death. There's the resurrection. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Listen, no person in the history of the world has ever gone through the chastening of the Lord, having made themselves vulnerable to his will and ultimately regretted it. Is it hard? Yeah, is it going to hurt? Yeah. Do you have to own up to the fact that you did wrong? Yeah. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Every single time. It is marvelous when that happens. So I'm going to ask you, is this you today? Is there an area of your life where you've been trying to usurp God's place? Is there a corner of your heart you won't let him into? If that's you, repent. Turn away from that. Reject it. <laughs> Come back to the Lord. Choose to be vulnerable before the Lord so that he can restore you to wholeness. And you've got an opportunity to do that, to respond right now. Maybe you've never done that before in your life and like, I, I want to be baptized. I need to give my life over to Jesus. You've got a chance to do that. As we sing, I would invite you to come forward. Make that confession. Be immersed. Receive God's spirit to live inside you. Kill off the old you and let God raise up a new one. <laughs> Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, boy, Casey, I've been doing some plotting lately. Whew. Okay, okay. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It's all, repent. Maybe, maybe reach out to someone next to you and say, you know what, would you hold me accountable? I've been, I've been fighting this and it's not working. <laughs> Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you have something weighing you down today and, and need prayer. We'd love to pray with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you today.